Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Job Openings, The Rise of Africana Professional Philosophy. Welcome to the end of our story, and welcome also to a story that has only just begun. It has always been our intention to recount the historical development of Africana philosophy only up to the end of the 20th century. Distance in time is an indispensable aid to historical perspective, so it seems foolhardy to try to provide judicious coverage of the mere quarter of the 21st century that has passed since then. This final episode, then, will focus on the last three decades of the 20th century, and more specifically the growth of Africana philosophy as a professional enterprise in those decades. As we noted in our very first episode, the term itself, Africana philosophy, only came into common usage in the 1990s. So it is only in our current century that we see many professional philosophers claiming Africana philosophy as their specialty. In fact, here's a prediction. If we were writing this not in 2024, but 2124 or 2224, assuming optimistically that there are still humans around that far into the future and that some of them are still willing to listen to podcasts, our telling of the story of Africana philosophy in the 21st century would focus centrally on works by and debates among professional philosophers. This is in sharp contrast to our telling of the story of Africana philosophy in the 20th century, in which only a handful of episodes dealt with professional philosophers. Professional philosophy is thus becoming the center of the action in our current century, and by saying something now about the background for that development, we are setting the stage for a story that is not yet ready to be told. Let's turn our attention first then to Africa itself. Back in episode 15, we discussed the impact of the Belgian missionary Placide Temples' 1945 book Bantu Philosophy, which stimulated much conversation and controversy with its account of how philosophy could be found in African oral traditions. Among the most important responses was, as we noted, the Rwandan priest and philosopher Alexis Kagame's doctoral thesis, which he titled The Rwandan Bantu Philosophy of Being. Kagame defended this unusual dissertation, written in the form of a dialogue, at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome in 1955, and it was published the following year by Belgium's Royal Academy of Colonial Sciences. Given its content and influence, and Kagame's subsequent career as an academic, 1955 can fairly be described as the year that African philosophy as a professional enterprise was born, although there are earlier anticipations worth taking into account as well. Too little attention has been paid, for example, to the pioneering Ghanaian thinker and political leader J.B. Dankwa. When he got his PhD in philosophy from University College London all the way back in 1927, he was the first West African to take a doctorate at any British university. Dankwa's dissertation was entitled The Moral End as Moral Excellence. Its reflections on the importance of devotion to the common good paved the way for the dual concern with morality and religion in his most famous book, The Akan Doctrine of God. We drew on this 1944 study when discussing traditional African conceptions of God in episode 18. Danka did not, however, embark upon a career as a professor after getting his PhD. Upon his return to what was then still the British colony of the Gold Coast, he practiced law, started a newspaper, and eventually co-founded the colony's first political party aimed at achieving independence, the United Gold Coast Convention. When he convinced a young man named Kwame Nkrumah to join the organization and serve as its general secretary, Danka helped to kickstart the political career of the man who would supersede him as the foremost leader of the struggle for independence. 
As it happens, Nkrumah, like Dankar, had previously gone abroad and studied philosophy at an advanced level. He obtained a master's degree in philosophy from the University of Pennsylvania and worked towards a PhD both there and then at University College London under the supervision of the famous British philosopher A.J. Ayer, though he did not complete the degree at either institution. The work that Nkrumah did in the early to mid-1940s for the first of those two uncompleted doctoral candidacies gives us one of the great ironies of Africana philosophy's history. As we described in episode 24, a major development in the growth of African philosophy as a professionalized pursuit came with sharp criticisms of attempts to locate philosophy in Africa's oral traditions. Working independently of each other in the late 1960s and early 1970s, Paulin Huntunji of Benin and Marcien Towa of Cameroon both used ethno-philosophy as a label for the kind of work they were criticizing, derisively categorizing such work as ethnography dressed up as philosophy. It was Hutunji who eventually noticed that, long before he and Toa came up with the word as a way of criticizing others, Nkrumah had already used it positively. His substantially written but never defended thesis was entitled Mind and Thought in Primitive Society, a Study in Ethnophilosophy with Special Reference to the Akan Peoples of the Gold Coast, West Africa. If a figure of Nkrumah's importance had published such a work, the metaphilosophical debate among professional African philosophers in the last third of the 20th century might have gone very differently. It's also hard to miss, when you begin to pay attention, the especially prominent role that Ghanaians have played in the story of professional African philosophy. Lest we forget, long before Danka studied in England, Anton Wilhelm Amo became a professional philosopher in 18th century Germany, and then apparently a respected person of wisdom once he returned to the land of his birth. Then there is the case of William Emmanuel Abraham. After achieving an advanced degree from Oxford, a BPhil, and securing a prestigious fellowship at Oxford's All Souls College, he was convinced by Nkrumah to come back and take a position at the University of Ghana. This was in 1962, the same year that Abraham published his groundbreaking book, The Mind of Africa, which was a wide-ranging philosophical examination of African culture and politics. Two other philosophers employed by the University of Ghana stand out as among the most impressive African thinkers of the 20th century, and we mentioned each of them regularly when discussing philosophy in oral traditions and the meta-philosophical debate. We are speaking of Kwasi Wiridu and Kwame Jeche. Wiridu was a good friend of Abraham's, and like him got a BPhil from Oxford and came back to teach at Legon, as the University of Ghana is known in reference to its location. Unlike Abraham, who made a name for himself early on with The Mind of Africa, Wiridu didn't publish much of anything during the 1960s. The next decade, however, saw him publishing up a storm, at first mainly on topics like logic, truth, and philosophy of mathematics, and then eventually on the topic of what African philosophy is, or could be. 1976 saw the publication of his classic paper, How Not to Compare African Traditional Thought with Western Thought, and this was included as a chapter in his 1980 book, Philosophy and an African Culture. A second book, published in 1996, Cultural, Universals, and Particulars, collected much of the influential work he did in the 1980s and 90s when he moved from attacking ethno-philosophy to articulating his own approach to philosophy in traditional African thought. As for Kwame Jeche, he got his PhD from Harvard in 1969, specializing in a topic close to my own heart, the reception of ancient Greek philosophy in the medieval Islamic world. A number of his early publications thus focused on Al-Farabi, by the mid-1970s, though, he began to explore and print his interest in proverbs as a source of philosophical thought in traditional African culture. The ultimate fruit of this labor was his landmark 1987 book, An Essay on African Philosophical Thought 
the Akan conceptual scheme. He is also well known for his 1997 book, Tradition and Modernity, Philosophical Reflections on the African Experience, which, as we mentioned in episode 20, defends a moderate form of communitarianism. In recognition of the distinctive contributions of Ghanaians to the development of African philosophy as a discipline, Wiridu and Jeche put together an edited volume in 1992 titled Person and Community, Ghanaian Philosophical Studies 1, featuring essays by themselves, Abraham, and others. This makes 1992 a particularly symbolic year for the Ghanaian presence in philosophy, because this was also the year that Kwame Anthony Appiah published In My Father's House, Africa in the Philosophy of Culture. Appiah is a key figure in Africana philosophy, as we'll see shortly when we turn our attention from developments in Africa to those in the United States. First, though, we'd like to point out that, if Ghana has been especially productive of philosophers among Anglophone African countries, then Cameroon would be among the countries that stand out on the Francophone side. Marcian Toa is an example we have already mentioned, but he was one of two Cameroonians whose criticisms of ethnophilosophy in the 1960s and 70s influenced the development of the discipline. The other would be Fabian Aboussi Boulaga, best known for his dense, difficult, but nevertheless rich 1977 book, Muntu in Crisis, as it is called in English. At the very end of the 20th century, another Cameroonian, Achille Mbembe, emerged as a major theorist of African identity through his writings on power, sex, violence, and other aspects of life in what he calls the post-colony. Admittedly, Mbembe was not trained as a philosopher, but rather as a historian and political scientist. Yet his work is so eminently philosophical that many view him today as one of Africa's greatest living philosophers. Let us turn now to the rise of professional philosophy outside of Africa. Our focus will be on the United States, but this will not mean ignoring other parts of the diaspora. In particular, we're going to meet several figures who hailed from the Caribbean but wound up working at American institutions. First, though, we should note that some of the African philosophers we've already mentioned also spent time in the U.S., for example, we left out of our account of Ghanaian philosophy the fact that Abraham left Ghana in 1968, working as a visiting professor at various American institutions before joining the philosophy department at UC Santa Cruz in 1973, where he would remain until retirement. We did already tell you, back in episode 27, that Wiridu's move to America greatly influenced his focus during the 1980s and 90s on traditional African thought. Finally, while Jeche stayed until retirement at the University of Ghana, fellowships and visiting professorships in the U.S. were crucially helpful to his career. He wrote Tradition and Modernity, for example, during his stay in Washington, D.C., as a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Scholars. When we last took an extended look at the entry of African Americans into the profession in episode 80, we cut our story off in 1965, the year that Joyce Mitchell Cook got a Ph.D. in philosophy at Yale. This makes her, to our knowledge, the first black woman to get a PhD in philosophy anywhere in the world. In 1970, while employed at Howard University, Cook was encouraged by the department's chair to represent Howard at a conference held at the University of Illinois Chicago, or Chicago Circle, as it was known then. It was a conference on philosophy and the black experience, organized by Irving Thalberg Jr., a faculty member at Chicago Circle. He was the son of the famous movie producer Irving Thalberg, but rather than follow his father into the entertainment business, he became a philosopher greatly concerned with America's problem with anti-Black racism. His 1972 article, Visceral Racism, for example, begins with a quotation from Malcolm X. The conference he organized in 1970 brought together a number of young Black philosophers. 
Cook presented a paper entitled A Critique of Black Experience, in which she agreed with Fanon's critique of negritude. It was the first time she turned her philosophical attention to matters of race, which had played no role in her Yale dissertation on the American pragmatist Stephen Pepper's theory of value. By contrast, another attendee, Bernard Boxall, a graduate student pursuing his PhD at UCLA, came to the conference well far along the path to defending his dissertation, titled A Philosophical Examination of Black Protest Thought. He delivered a paper at the conference arguing for the justice of paying reparations to African Americans for the harms they suffered during slavery, although he was not himself an African American. Boxall held from St. Lucia, the Caribbean island that has given us such luminaries of the black world as the creative writer Derek Walcott and the economist Arthur Lewis, both of whom won Nobel Prizes. Given its small size, this makes St. Lucia the country that has won the most Nobel Prizes per capita, a fact in which St. Lucians can naturally take pride. And they can also pride themselves on Boxall's pioneering role in the development of professional Africana philosophy. He had come to UCLA after getting a master's degree in philosophy at the University of New Brunswick, up in Canada, and he arrived in Los Angeles planning to focus on logic. But he turned up in 1965, the year of the Watts riots, and the turmoil of the moment had a huge impact on him, just as it did on Maulana Karenga, who ceased pursuing his doctorate at UCLA in that same year. It's also worth noting that Boxo was a graduate student there at the same time as Molefi Asante. It became clear to Boxall that he had to engage philosophically with the issues of the time. Fortunately, his supervisor, Thomas Hill, a specialist in Kant's moral and political philosophy, who happened to be around the same age as him, encouraged him to explore these interests, while also insisting that he know as much as possible about the history of Western political philosophy. Boxall thus managed to establish himself in the beginning of his career as a professional philosopher working primarily on black political thought, from his dissertation to his early publications, such as The Morality of Reparation in 1972, the same paper he delivered at the conference. This was certainly a departure from the experiences of older black philosophers. Boxall was not alone in this new endeavor, as he experienced at the conference in Chicago Circle. Here he met a number of lifelong friends, such as Howard McGarry, then a graduate student at the University of Minnesota. McGarry would eventually write his dissertation on the same subject Boxall presented on, that is, the justice of reparations. As important as this first conference was, nothing testified better to the increasing numbers of black philosophers and interest in black philosophy than a pair of conferences held at Tuskegee in 1973 and 1976. Yes, that's right, Tuskegee. Those biased by their understanding of the Du Bois-Washington debate may not have expected this, but it was Tuskegee that stepped up among the historically black colleges of the time to host further conferences on the topic of philosophy and the black experience. Many who would become important names in African-American philosophy attended one or both events, including the subject of our previous two episodes, Cornell West. Along with Boxill, McGarry, and a number of others, West also attended meetings of the New York Society for the Study of Black Philosophy, which were hosted at the home of book publisher Alfred Prettyman, beginning in 1976. This particular institution has stood the test of time, by the way, eventually changing its name to the Society for the Study of Africana Philosophy and continuing to meet in Prettyman's home. A direct result of the Tuskegee Conferences was the first major collection of work in what was then still called Black Philosophy, the first of the two special issues of the Philosophical Forum that we've had multiple occasions to mention recently. It's instructive to consider how the contents of the 1977 issue prepared the way for what was yet to come. The first two articles were decidedly meta-philosophical, West's Philosophy and the Afro-American Experience, 
which we've already discussed at length, and William R. Jones's The Legitimacy and Necessity of Black Philosophy, Some Preliminary Considerations. These articles attempt to clear conceptual space in which a new tradition can flourish, and, as is explicit in West's choice of the term Afro-American, they are concerned especially with the philosophy that can emerge from the African-American experience. The third article, however, was Jesse McDade's Toward an Ontology of Negritude. McDade was an African-American philosopher, indeed the one tasked with guest editing this special issue, and his contribution is symbolic of the engagement by African-American philosophers of the time with African and Afro-Caribbean ideas. On the flip side, the issue also featured an article titled The Resentment of Injustice, Some Consequences of Institutional Racism by the Nigerian philosopher Efiany Menkiti, a recent philosophy PhD from Harvard. Especially prophetic of future developments in the field was Boxall's contribution, Du Bois and Fanon on Culture, which contrasts Du Bois's pan-Africanist cultural nationalism with Fanon's critique of the same, and sides ultimately with Du Bois. At a time before the formation of a canon in this area of study, Boxall rightly predicted that these two figures, W.E.B. Du Bois and Franz Fanon, would be central. Another philosopher active during this period, who can be said to have predicted their centrality, would be Lucius Outlaw, whose 1972 dissertation begins with a quotation of the double consciousness passage from Du Bois's The Souls of Black Folk, and then, near the dissertation's end, provides an extended discussion of the opening chapter of Fanon's Black Skin, White Masks, in which Fanon addresses the topic of language. Outlaw attended many of the important conferences and meetings we've mentioned from the 1970s. In the next decade, he would step forward to bestow a new name on this developing field, Africana philosophy. As he is recounted in autobiographical writings, Outlaw's story begins in the town of Starkville, Mississippi, where he spent his boyhood in the 1940s and 50s. An only child, he was nurtured by his family and the broader Black community, but also perplexed and frustrated by the contradictions and restrictions of Jim Crow segregation. He left in 1963 to go to Fisk University, Du Bois's alma mater and just as attending Fisk was a transformative experience for Du Bois in the 1880s, so it was for Outlaw in the 1960s. His time there was deeply marked by the civil rights movement, and subsequently the transition to the black power movement. He felt the challenge to reshape his consciousness posed by fellow students involved in SNCC, including Nikki Giovanni. During Outlaw's last year at Fisk, the university's annual Spring Arts Festival brought to campus a number of the major literary figures of the time, a particularly powerful reading by Amiri Baraka led Outlaw to approach him afterward and thank him, saying, I may have entered Fisk as a Negro, but I'll leave a black man. But while the tenor of the times brought this new investment in radical blackness, there was also the matter of what he was getting in classrooms. In this regard, one of Outlaw's cherished memories is the anthropology course he took with a Nigerian professor named Chike Onwachi. Outlaw recalls, for the very first time in my life, I had to actually sit down and give serious attention and consideration to Africa, to think positively about Africa, about my own relations to Africa and its peoples. Professor Anwachi made such an impression on Outlaw that he later named one of his sons Chike. Years later, when he received an email from a Canadian student seeking advice about pursuing graduate study with a specialization in Africana philosophy, he delighted in the coincidence that this young man was another diasporic Chike, just like his son. After his time as a student at Fisk, Outlaw spent the late 1960s working towards his PhD at Boston College, producing a dissertation entitled Language and the Transformation of Consciousness, Foundations for a Hermeneutic of Black Culture. He returned to Fisk to teach, 
and it was while he was employed there that he attended some of these early conferences on black philosophy, and also made it over to Tanzania for the 6th Pan-African Congress. This remarkable experience was made possible by the leader of the North American delegation, James Turner, who we have mentioned before as the founding director of the Africana Studies and Research Center at Cornell University. Perhaps you can already see the dots of our story beginning to connect, but before we reach its climactic point, there is one more important trip to Africa we must mention. In June of 1980, there was a UNESCO-organized conference in Nairobi, Kenya, called Teaching and Research in Philosophy, Africa. This is the conference at which Kwasi Wiradu began to speak of conceptual decolonization, as we described in episode 27. Papers were also delivered by major figures like Paulin Hondunji and Henry Odera Oruka. Outlaw was impressed by this conference and inspired to work towards bringing these big names of African philosophy to the States. By this time, he had moved to Haverford College, a liberal arts institution located near to Philadelphia. Thus, it was that in July of 1982, Outlaw organized a conference featuring many of the African philosophers he met in Nairobi, alongside African-American and Afro-Caribbean philosophers he'd gotten to know at the conferences of the 1970s. He called it the Africana Philosophy International Research Conference, and it was then, 10 years before he theorized the label in the pages of the Philosophical Forum, that the term Africana philosophy was first officially used. This means, by the way, that it was born the very same month as the Chike with whom I've collaborated on this series of episodes on Africana philosophy. 1982 was also, as you may recall, the year that Cornell West published his first book, Prophesied Deliverance. For each of the three years following this one, there were other landmark publications that did much to further establish the field. The most self-consciously groundbreaking of these three was the anthology that Leonard Harris edited and published in 1983, Philosophy Born of Struggle, Anthology of Afro-American Philosophy from 1917. Harris is another of those who was there from the beginning, attending the conference at Chicago Circle in 1970 and many of the conferences and meetings that followed. We have, of course, already featured him on the podcast as an interview guest back in episode 79 as the world's foremost expert on the philosophy of Alain Locke. This is, in fact, what explains the periodization in the anthology's title. It was in 1917 that Locke completed and submitted his dissertation, The Problem of Classification in Theory of Value, resulting in his attainment of the PhD from Harvard the following year. Locke is represented in the anthology by his classic 1935 essay, Values and Imperatives. Harris also included essays by a number of the other African-American philosophers who preceded the rise in numbers entering the profession in the 1970s, such as William Fontaine and Cornelius Golightly. Then there was the new generation, including Angela Davis, represented by her Unfinished Lecture on Liberation too. Davis wrote this reflection on Frederick Douglass for a course she taught on Black literature at UCLA in 1969, and it became one of her most celebrated writings from a philosophical perspective. Harris also included a few essays by eminently philosophical minds outside of the discipline, such as Maulana Karenga and the literary theorist Houston A. Baker Jr. There had never been anything like this book before, an anthology validating the existence of a tradition of African-American philosophy. Harris struggled mightily to find a publisher before Kendall Hunt said yes. In 1984, Boxhill published Blacks and Social Justice, a highly influential demonstration of what philosophers can bring to discussions of the social problems facing African-Americans. Attempting to capture its importance in a symposium marking the book's 25th anniversary in 2009, Tommy Shelby argued that Boxall successfully showed the value of taking an analytical approach to African-American political philosophy. 
According to Shelby, himself a practitioner of philosophy in this style, Boxall's book in fact counts as the exemplar par excellence of this approach, the standard against which all other attempts must be judged, and the singular point of departure for those who would write about racial justice in the analytic idiom. Looking back on the book today, it's interesting to see which issues have remained prominent and which haven't. Chapter 2, Lack Progress and the Free Market, takes on Thomas Sowell, the African-American libertarian and conservative who to this day has many devoted fans. It's strange, on the other hand, to see the no-longer-so-burning issue of busing, which we briefly discussed in our episode on CRT, take up three whole chapters, representing about a third of the book. For 1985, we want to highlight a journal article, rather than a book, Kwame Anthony Appiah's The Uncompleted Argument, Du Bois and the Illusion of Race, published in Critical Inquiry as part of a special issue on race put together by his good friend Henry Louis Gates. It's unlikely that at the time either Appiah or Gates could have guessed at how enormous the essay's impact would be, for it is today regularly recognized as something of a starting point for philosophy of race as we know it. It's also seen as the opening move in what came to be known as the Appiah Outlaw Debate, so that this moment marks the birth of philosophy of race as a professional enterprise. Appiah had a very different background and path into philosophy than what we've seen with Outlaw. He was born in London in 1954, making him 10 years younger than Outlaw. While Outlaw vividly remembers how the brutal murder of Emmett Till in Mississippi in 1955 taught him to avoid any romantic or sexual involvement with white girls, Appiah was the product of a marriage between a black man from Ghana and a white woman from England. Both parents came from an aristocratic background, respectively Ashanti and British. Appiah spent much of his childhood in Kumasi, the capital of Ashanti land, but then went to a boarding school in England. From this culturally complex upbringing, Appiah rose to become a philosopher, getting both his undergraduate degree and his PhD at Cambridge. He came to the United States in 1981, taking his first job at Yale. Early on in his career, he specialized in the philosophy of language. His first two books, Assertion and Conditionals, from 1985, and For Truth in Semantics, from 1986, address these issues in a technical, analytical frame that betrays no concern with distinctively Africana concerns. For all these differences, though, Appiah and Outlaw were tied together by the history of Pan-Africanism. Joe Appiah, Anthony's father, was a dedicated Pan-Africanist who befriended Nkuma in London after the latter's arrival there in 1945, and the two Ghanaians were both close with the famous Trinidadian Pan-Africanist George Padmore. Appiah has noted that his father was there with Du Bois and Nkrumah in Manchester at the 5th Pan-Africanist Congress in 1945, which was mainly organized by Padmore. When the 6th Pan-Africanist Congress came along in Tanzania in 1974, his father was there again, and he didn't spot anyone else who had managed to attend both events. Of course, as we know, someone else who went to Tanzania was outlaw. Appiah sought to learn from and embody what was best in his father's Pan-Africanism, which survived his father's falling out with Nkrumah. Actually, falling out is putting it mildly. During Appiah's childhood, his father spent years in prison detained under Nkrumah's Preventive Detention Act. Danka, by the way, experienced the same, and died in prison in 1965, the year before Nkrumah was deposed by a coup. So, it's with good reason that Appiah says, near the beginning of In My Father's House, written shortly after his father's death in 1990, My father is my model for the possibility of a pan-Africanism without racism, both in Africa and its, in its diaspora a concrete possibility whose conceptual implications this book is partly intended to explore. Which is useful background for understanding what Appiah is up to in The Uncompleted Argument. His aim in the essay is to diagnose Du Bois's difficulty in letting go of the concept of race. 
he analyzes Du Bois's definition of race in The Conservation of Races, acknowledging that Du Bois aims to provide us with a socio-historical rather than biological account of race, but arguing that Du Bois fails in this goal. This failure is instructive in his view, for he takes the position that when we acknowledge that races are not biologically real, we are led to the conclusion that the truth is that there are no races, there is nothing in the world that can do all we ask race to do for us. Appiah incorporated this argument into In My Father's House, the second chapter of which is a revised version of this essay. A number of different philosophers responded critically to Appiah's reading of Du Bois and denial of the reality of race, defending Du Bois as having provided us with a reasonably successful socio-historical account of race. A good example would be Tommy Lott's contribution to the 1992 special issue of the Philosophical Forum, which was titled Du Bois on the Invention of Race. Boxall defended Du Bois against Appiah in a paper called Du Bois on Cultural Pluralism, which is interesting because Boxall seems to have gone back and forth on what to make of Du Bois' view in conservation. While he sided with Du Bois against Fanon in Du Bois and Fanon on Culture, back in the 70s we find him in the eighth chapter of Blacks and Social Justice criticizing Du Bois' views on self-segregation and invoking Fanon in positive terms. By the 90s, though, while responding to Appiah, he ended up back on Du Bois' side. Outlaw, by contrast, stood as more diametrically opposed to Appiah's view than anyone else, precisely because, unlike those other philosophers, he was keen to defend the reality of race as partially a biological matter. That being said, his greatest concern was with social dimensions of Du Bois's notion of race, its political and cultural power. In Against the Grain of Modernity, the Politics of Difference and the Conservation of Race, also published in 1992, Outlaw argued that Appiah had overlooked the ways in which Du Bois revealed races to be communities of meaning. Endorsing Du Bois's ideal, Outlaw emphasized our lack of self-sufficiency as human beings and argued that this makes racial identity an important source of meaning worth preserving. He clarified his position this way, For many persons, and I place myself in this group, the continued existence of discernible race and ethnic-based communities of meaning is highly desirable, even if, in the very next instant, racism and perverted invidious ethnocentrism in every form and manifestation would disappear forever. At a conference held in Rutgers in 1994, called Race, Its Meaning and Significance, this difference in view between Appiah and Outlaw turned explosive. We get a description of what happened in an interview with Albert Mosley, printed in George Yancey's African American Philosopher's 17 Conversations. Mosley is yet another one of the originals who was there at Chicago Circle, and so by the time of this conference at Rutgers, he had known many of the people there for about a quarter of a century. Here's his description of what happened. At the conference, Outlaw was bemoaning the fact that he had to continue to comment on commentaries about his and Appiah's differences, and rather offhandedly characterized Appiah's position as a form of ethnic cleansing. Given what was happening in Yugoslavia at this time, in terms of ethnic cleansing, Appiah was insulted by the analogy and he walked out of the room. I think Outlaw used an inappropriate metaphor, but had not intended his description in the way Appiah understood it, and I followed Appiah out and said so to him. Afterwards, Outlaw and Appiah talked, and I believe clarified their positions to one another, but the passions generated reflect the importance of the issue. Quite a moment. But as we begin to draw our account to a close, it would be a shame to end on a note of discord rather than unity, so let's turn again to the 1992 special issue of the Philosophical Forum. Its first article is by Appiah, and it is titled African American Philosophy? That's with a question mark. Which is not there to suggest that no such thing exists. To the contrary, Appiah is open to the possibility that there is a role for something like ethno-philosophy, 
not just in the case of African philosophy, but in African-American philosophy too. This is followed by an article by Wiereju on the Akan philosophical tradition, and after that comes Outlaw's article which introduces in print the term Africana philosophy. We can't help but mention the fourth article by Leonard Harris, given its classic title, The Horror of Tradition, or How to Burn Babylon and Build Benin, while reading a preface to a 20-volume suicide note. And for those who don't know, a preface to a 20-volume suicide note is a poem by Amiri Baraka. There are other articles one might discuss in depth here too, like the fascinating readings of Du Bois, Crummel, and Washington in Frank Kirkland's Modernity and Intellectual Life in Black. But we'll content ourselves with flagging the increase in representation of Black women philosophers in this special issue as compared to the first. Where Joyce Mitchell Cook was the only Black woman philosopher in the 1977 special issue, the 1992 issue features Michelle M. Moody Adams, Anita Allen, and Adrian Piper. Piper is known both as an accomplished professional philosopher and, perhaps even more famously, an accomplished visual artist. The 1977 special issue was never reprinted and is thus currently hard to access, but the 1992 special issue was published some years afterwards as a book titled African American Perspectives and Philosophical Traditions. We can relate to this the story of how other anthologies published during the 1990s increasingly displayed the vitality of Africana philosophy as a disciplinary formation. For example, when the Nigerian philosopher Emmanuel Eze put out African philosophy and anthology in 1998, he did not use the term Africana in the title, but nevertheless united the continent of Africa with the African diaspora in the anthology's scope in precisely the way Outlaw's invention of the term recommends. The volume puts figures like Julius Nyere and Chinua Achebe along figures like Bernard Boxall and Bell Hooks. It also includes Outlaw's essay bringing forth the term. Another significant edited volume of the late 1990s was Existence in Black, an Anthology of Black Existential Philosophy, edited by another of our interview guests, Lewis Gordon. No one was better placed than Gordon to put together such a volume. Originally from Jamaica, but brought to New York City, specifically the South Bronx, at the age of nine, Gordon got his PhD from Yale in 1993, and he revised and published his dissertation as his first book, Bad Faith and Anti-Black Racism. This work used the existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre's notion of bad faith to explain racism directed against black people. Gordon thus became known for bringing together existentialism and black issues. He was also conspicuous in his embrace of the term Africana philosophy. It is not in the title of Existence in Black, which collects 21 essays by black philosophers engaging with existentialist themes, but the book's introduction informs readers we will at times use the term Africana philosophy to describe our philosophical context. Gordon goes on to quote Outlaw's definition in his essay from the 1992 special issue. In the year 2000, Gordon released another single-authored volume, and this time he made his allegiance to the term doubly clear in the title itself, Existencia Africana, Understanding Africana Existential Thought. As a thinker of Caribbean origin who wound up working in the U.S., Gordon was in good company. Charles Mills was also originally from Jamaica, but unlike Gordon, he grew there to adulthood, doing his undergraduate degree in physics at the University of the West Indies before moving to Canada and doing his PhD in philosophy at the University of Toronto. His publications in the late 1980s, after he got his doctorate, focused mainly on analytical approaches to questions in Marxist thought. By this point, he was living in the United States, firstly at the University of Oklahoma. It was here that he started to think more about race and racism. Then in 1990, he took a job at the University of Illinois Chicago, 
the same university at which the important conference organized by Irving Thalberg Jr. happened all those years ago. Looking back on that event, Mills deliberately organized a sequel in 2001, a conference called Black Philosophy for the 21st Century. Before that, however, he had made a name for himself with The Racial Contract, his 1997 book adapting social contract theory to explain white supremacy as a socio-political system. The book became hugely popular, as philosophy books go. His 1998 book, Blackness Visible, Essays on Philosophy and Race, further solidified his position as an important voice in Africana philosophy. And finally, as in the case of Mbembe, there's someone we must recognize, even if he was trained as a sociologist, not a philosopher. Paget Henry of Antigua got his PhD in sociology from Cornell University in 1976, and in 1985 published an important text on the history and economic underdevelopment of Antigua. Before all that, though, while he was still in high school, he fell in love with philosophy and began reading voraciously in the area. This is why he eventually decided to follow his heart and write the first book-length work on philosophy in Afro-Caribbean thought. He published Caliban's Reason, Introducing Afro-Caribbean Philosophy, in the year 2000. It was put out by Routledge in a new book series called Africana Thought, the same series that included Gordon's Existencia Africana. The book also makes clear that Henry did not intend to isolate Afro-Caribbean philosophy from other parts of Africana philosophy. On the contrary, the first chapter is devoted to an account of traditional African philosophy that informs subsequent chapters, and the book's sixth chapter explicitly aligns Henry with Outlaw, rejecting what he describes as Cornell West's American reading of Afro-American philosophy and offering instead an Africana reading of Afro-American philosophy as a brother or sister discourse with the Afro-Caribbean tradition. Taking all this together, it's clear that the last decades of the 20th century were a productive and exciting time in Africana philosophy, and the same goes for the almost quarter of a century that have passed since the year 2000. As we've said, we will not be attempting to cover that in the detail it would deserve, but we don't want to leave the topic completely untouched, so it's one of the subjects we'll be addressing in one final episode, which will feature an interview with one of the chiques who was mentioned this time. You can probably guess which one, but to be absolutely sure, you'll have to tune in to the last installment of The History of African Philosophy. <laughs>